it is going to be nigh on impossible for me to be objective about this movie. It's like I acknowledge all its flaws, but I just love it so much, so inexplicably. Yeah, it was a good movie, but I'm uh, still not entirely sure um, why you specifically were really drawn to it. I guess we'll we'll find out more as we talk about it. Yeah, I'm sure I'll hijack a good portion of the recording, just ruminating on on the whys. It is one of the longer scripts that you've written, so there's obviously a lot more detail that you're interested in. I think, yeah, well, they do pack in a lot. It's one of those things where, like, the plot is... You don't know what's important and what's not, really, in something like this, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I think I feel like I'm missing a lot with it. Um, so I'm anxious to get schooled, basically. You should, you'll get schooled. You'll get schooled hard. Maybe. Maybe not, because I, I, I do acknowledge all its flaws. But I don't know, there's something about it that I just find so immensely likable. It is immensely likable. And uh, speaking of immensely likable... Hello, hello, hello. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award podcast with one last big show. With one last big show so that we can earn what we lost in Wall Street. And the doctors are urging us to take it easy, but damn it, we're not gonna. No, not at all. Because everyone knows that you can't direct something without having a heart attack unless you're not a very good director. Yeah. Yeah. It shows you care. Exactly. We are rating and reviewing every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this is episode number 045, 42nd Street. Naughty, Dotty bodies, party, 42nd Street, please. Exactly. Um, so we are, we are already kind of getting into it, into the, uh, the prelude, I guess. Um, you are a huge fan of this movie and have been talking it up. Uh, ever since we started this project. And in fact, it is the source of our title. It is. Yeah, this movie is something I saw when I was, I guess, at a pivotal age, like probably preteen is when I saw it. My, uh, I think my dad had taped a uh, PBS special about uh, Busby Berkeley. There were a lot of clips from this and that got me curious. And so he got it from the library and it just got its hooks into my uh, imagination and would not let go. That's cool. It's, it's cool. when there's like just that movie that you can still point to um, from, from way back in the day. And it's not even an embarrassing movie. So that's good. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's got, it's rife with me too moments that aren't properly addressed. Right. By today's standards, or probably, let's be real, any standards. But I don't know. There is an energy about it and a frankness about it that I feel like doesn't sugarcoat anything, at least. Uh, yeah, I can see that. It's um, I don't know if gritty reality was really what they were going for here, but you do get the uh, sense that this is really how things were moving at that point. And, um, and it, it's not great, but at somehow... Somehow the plot lets you move past that. It does. Uh, yeah. I'm just writing down the uh, the different categories that we're going to cover here, um, because on this right. podcast, what we do is we uh, are going to kind of review the plot of the movie and offer our two cents um, as far as the plot goes and what we liked and what we disliked about it. 
And then we are actually going to rate the movie on um, different categories, including acting, writing, cinematography, and overall. And then we are going to give it a chance for some bonus points by giving it points for costumes and set, um, boldness, legacy, like, you know, how did it influence movies going forward? Uh, longevity, how well it stands up over time, like we were just talking about, and um, technical. So any kind of like technical achievements it has. Um, so those are the categories we're going to cover. And uh, you're discussing uh, kind of your personal relationship with this movie, which is it's not every movie that we have a personal relationship with. Right. And I didn't even realize how, because I haven't hadn't seen it in years. So it's not like uh, The Bride of Frankenstein or The Big Lebowski for me, movies that I tend to just sort of watch annually. Uh, but it was for a while in my youth and I had such good memories. And, I, you know, and you're always scared when you rewatch a movie you haven't seen in years, whether it's going to hold up. But I have to say this did. And I'm pleased it did. And I acknowledge, once again, all, all its all warts and all, but I still think even with the warts, it's pretty spectacular. <laughs> it really, really is. It's, it's a great movie. Um, how great we'll get into, and especially in our rating and whatnot. But um, let's, uh, I guess, start off with the, uh, the plot of the movie, and then we'll get into the whole rating of it. Sounds good. All right. Directed by Lloyd Bacon and choreographed by the legendary Busby Berkeley, 42nd Street opens in the Depression era days when the news of a couple of Broadway producers opening a new show is eagerly devoured by rich and poor alike. Such is the case when Jones and Barry, played by Robert McWade and Ned Sparks, respectively, announce production of their new musical, Pretty Lady. I, I just, it was just kind of hilarious right from the start to see that like you know socialites and mechanics alike are delighted spreading the word around town about like jones and barry are putting on a show jones and barry are putting on a show in a montage of faces um it's like pauline kale said all these tropes are are being set up in this movie it's hard not to laugh at them today Mm -hmm. but you can see why they they're so cheesy they're fun yeah it's it's a really fun part and also um jones and barry don't play like that they don't have that many lines. They're not that huge of a part of the story, but they're still, you no. still buy them as these big figures in the industry just because of all of this, like stuff that's built Build up, up around them. And also just the, with the limited screen time, they have um, Robert McWade and, and definitely Ned Sparks uh, really, yes, really make an impression. Yeah. Sparks especially is great. He's, he's wonderful at playing the kind of, uh, drunk cynic who just talks out who perfects talking out the side of his mouth and he just he looks like a 30s caricature of his type of person um, yeah and we saw him in lady for a day yeah we saw him in lady for a day did we see him in anything else yeah um you know i think i'd remember him if he was so i think this is our second ned sparks appearance so great great actor um, i like it he, he's great uh, the producer signed cantankerous and jaded director Julian Marsh, played by Warner Baxter, who I'd say redeems himself uh, in his performance here for the unfortunate brown face of in old Arizona, where he played the Cisco kid. Oh, uh, right. He was, mis- he was miscast in that, but I think he's perfectly cast here. He's really good. Um, 
And Marsh has a history of nervous breakdowns because he's a director who cares. Mm-hmm. And that's how you know he's a good director. Because how he knows he, he uh, has a heart attack per show. He takes the show to earn enough money to retire, having lost beer needs from his earlier hits, thanks to the stock market crash. And once again, I admire the way these movies, you know, we have this uh, whole uh, belief that movies back then just ignored the depression entirely. It's like, no, it was baked into their lives so much that you didn't even really have to talk about it. Right. You could acknowledge it without, you know, hammering away at it. And I think that's the most realistic way to portray it. Um, after signing the contract, Marsh's doctor calls him, urging him not to do the show, as it's not only his mental health at stake, his high-pressure lifestyle could kill him if he's not careful. But he's Julian Marsh by God, and he ignores the doctor's advice. Uh, the star of the show is Dorothy Brock, played by silent star, or she was silent until now, Phoebe Daniels, whose sugar daddy is the wealthy nincompoop Abner Dillon, played by Guy Kibbe, also from Lady for a Day, who is financing the show and he manufactures kitty cars what are kitty cars i don't know i tried looking it up and i put in kitty cars i vary the spelling and all i get were like fun little toy cars for kids so i don't know what maybe that's it maybe that's it little cars for kids gosh yeah i I wonder if you the listener at home know what a kitty car is um i guess let Guess, us know, y'all. Yeah, send us a, a tweet at comebackastar or send us an email at comebackastarpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we must know how Abner Dillon earned his money. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm guessing it's not just those toy cars, but maybe it is. Maybe it is. He kind of is a Santa Claus looking figure, although he's a lot more sleazy than Santa. He, he's a creep. Um, he is. He's a creep. And Kibby's very good. Yeah. Kibby plays a good. Lecherous creep. Um, yep. We were supposed to laugh That's at him, spitty, but but he's not likable. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those things with hindsight. You're like his character just does not age too well. No, because I mean, he he even kind of, he's got the. He's Harvey Weinstein shaped even. So it's really hard to, I, and we're not supposed to sympathize with him, but I, we are supposed to kind of find him amusing and likable. And it's a little harder given everything. Yeah. That's come out over the years about the film entertainment industry. Right. Right. The next day is the chorus casting call organized by stage manager Andy Lee, played by George E. Stone, who we have seen in. We've seen several times. Yeah, we have. What What are some of the other things? Was he in Five Star Final? He was in Five Star Final. He was in um, Front Page and um, uh, Cimarron. And I'm sh- I, I feel like I'm even missing a movie. Well, again, one of those sadly forgotten names who was so good at everything he was in. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. Um, he has he's a funny character who is still funny. Like, yeah, yeah, he um, he kind of gets this like usual role of just kind of focus on how he looks. Honestly, um, mm-hmm. he just he just kind of has a funny face. He does. He's cute. I find him attractive, but he's very slight and. A little weaselly, but like not like offensively weaselly. Like you don't feel like punching him or anything. He's, I don't know. He's he's a likable. He is a likable jerk in his movie roles. It seems like. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
He has reluctantly promised his girlfriend, Lorraine Fleming, played by Una Merkel, a spot in the chorus. Also arriving with a small dog and a monocle and a lofty affected accent is Ginger Rogers as Anytime Annie, who only said no once. And then she didn't understand the question. Sorry, I had to speak that line in because I I remember that even as a kid, I didn't fully understand the implication. The way uh, Georgie Stone just whips that out is is priceless. It's just and it's Ginger Rogers. And I think this must have been just before her partnership with Fred Astaire, because otherwise they would have given her a more prominent job to show off her dancing skills. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and all these people are, you know, talented actors and dancers for the most part. It's it's kind of unfair. (laughs) You really do get to see the cream of the crop of the of 30s Hollywood here. As a prospective chorus, girls wisecrack and ready themselves for the aggressive attentions of the men around them. Naive newcomer Peggy Sawyer enters the mix, played by Ruby Keeler. Led on by some snickering girls, she accidentally barges in on professional, quote, juvenile actor Billy Lawler, played by Dick Powell, changing. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so tell me more about this professional juvenile. <laughs> it, 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 it's, just, it's just kind of like a, um, a classic role for the theater at that time for just the, the young man. Um, yeah, as far as I understand, kind of the male ingenue, I guess. Right. Uh, the young... Uh, you know, the the young man, I think all the younger girls are supposed to swoon over who, you know, I you get the impression here that the actors who play the juveniles are not really treated with the same respect as like actors who play the more heavy roles or do right. a lot of the uh, heavy lifting throughout. Um, and uh, Dick Powell, <laughs> he, you know, started out, this is, you know, this kind of the start of his career where he was the juvenile in most of his movies. He had a charming voice. He, he was charming, but he actually ended up, um, oh, dang it. Dad is going to kill me. He ended up, uh, I think it was Sam Spade, who was the detective that was first made popular by uh, Humphrey Bogart, in Maltese Falcon. But like in the 40s and 50s, he actually got, became more known for playing, I think it was that character. Um, oh, interesting. And yeah, so he was really good at both, I have to say, for uh I mean, it's corny. His roles are corny. And his and because of that, his performances are corny. But I, they're good still. Like, he's good at that. And um, and he was paired a lot with Keeler. And this was Keeler's first movie. And she had quite a fascinating life. Like, dancing for, like, she lied about her age and got, like, started on vaudeville at, like, 13. Uh, married Al Jolson at, like, 18 when, she, when he was 42. It's just a fascinating life, but you wouldn't be able to tell it because she does seem like gormless innocence personified. Like she's like this little innocent princess from outer space. She's such an oddball. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, She walks in on this juvenile Billy Lawler and uh, he's changing, but he is charmed by her and uh, and especially by her gormlessness. And leads her to the stage manager where she takes her place in the line next to Lorraine and Anne. Lorraine is likewise amused by Peggy's wide-eyed simplicity and gets Andy to hire her as and Anne as well. However, I, got, I just got to cut. Yeah, sorry. I just got to cut it cut in because Rogers and Merkel just have such great chemistry together as two typical wisecracking 
ditzy blondes that mm-hmm. I just I just love them. And they were they were the I think the first two characters that really hooked me on this movie because I hadn't really seen any female characters like this before who right. aren't brilliant are portrayed as not being particularly talented, but they're comfortable with who they are. Right. And I think that's that's really a powerful thing to say, especially in a scene where the women are treated like cattle. They're angrily told by aggressively told by the men around them to lift your skirts higher, higher. We want to see the legs. It's terrible, but they take it in stride. They shouldn't have to, but they do. And it's kind of this this inner strength in the face of all the grossness that around them that just really tickles me. And the fact that they stick up for dumb little Peggy also just gets to me. Right. Um, However, Peggy is cut in one of the rounds and it is only to be quickly hired back when Billy encourages Julian to uh, hire her after they come up with one girl short. So they're sitting there counting up the names and making sure that they have enough for this chorus line and they're they're one person short. So they one person short and yeah. They they decide to pick out uh, Peggy because she's still around sleeping in a corner, I guess. <laughs> Wait, waiting to be picked she's up just again. So per- perpetually out of it. Like I would say, in a way, I've come to hate the term Mary Sue. Because I feel like now it's just an excuse for people to call any any female character with a story centered around her the Mary Sue, no matter what her personality traits. But I feel like Peggy is kind of the prototype Mary Sue, in that we don't really know much about her. She shows up with deer in the headlights look and is kind of given all these lucky breaks. And That's I think true. if it wasn't for the kind of sincere oddballness of Keeler, it might be a little grating, but it just about makes it and she says her catchphrase which seems to be who me whenever anyone says hey could you do this could you do that who me (laughs) it's hilarious i don't know why but she's just hilarious to me yeah she's she's pretty great uh uh, i'll i'll give her i'll give her an a you'll give her an a for yeah for affability exactly once they are all gathered, Julian warns his cast how difficult and intense the next five weeks will be, and soon proves his word right by putting them through grueling rehearsal sessions, hammering on his actors constantly. Throughout, we see various early versions of musical numbers come together, uh, including one that is particularly corny and awful. And luckily, I was like hurting my teeth because I couldn't quite remember like, oh, God, is this supposed to be good? But luckily, Jillian's like, this would have been this would have cut the must have been 1905, but it stinks now. And so we see that he's he's brutal. He is very brutal, man. I Um, think that's what passes for good directing in this movie is just shouting a lot. It's it's yeah, it's unfortunate, as we now learn that as people are like, hey, we don't actually have to put up with that kind of abuse for the sake of art. But back then, it is not portrayed as a bad thing. It is portrayed as a man impassioned with his work. And Baxter makes it believable, but at the same yeah, time, it's it, true. It's not. It's not. It's not a great look. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we we kept saying like, well, when 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 do we get to see him like be truly this inspired director? And I guess we just we're just supposed to pick up on those instances where he's finally get, able to get through to people. But in the meantime, yes. most of it seems to be him getting frustrated with people. <laughs> Him getting frustrated and shouting and verbal abuse, you know, like an artiste. Dorothy, meanwhile, our star of the show, also sees her old vaudeville partner, uh, Pat Denning, played by George Brett, behind Abner's back. However, Pat is tiring of sneaking around, even though he still loves Dorothy dearly and she him. 
That doesn't stop him from bitterly starting a flirtation with Peggy after helping her when she faints during one particularly rough rehearsal. When Dorothy has to ditch him when Abner insists on taking her out, he takes Peggy to dinner instead. There's Peggy, just kind of Mary suing her way into sights, as she said. Ooh, me, dinner? We do see her start to kind of mirror the people around her and start wisecracking. You get the sense that mm-hmm. she is, for her formlessness, a quick study. And uh, can't help cheering for her. I need her. Oh, of course, absolutely. She is... Um... Well, I don't know if you really want her to like win in the whole like dating Pat Denning uh, situation, but you're not you don't you don't feel like, oh, she's chiseling in on this love story that we've been set up for. Um, Exactly. It's just kind of like, well, he's a man who dates two different women. And and she also dates other men. So there's also that. So there's that. I mean, really. What else are you going to do? It's like a normal human dating situation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. With no real bad guys on either side, which is refreshing. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, however, Marsh has gotten wise to Denning's relationship with Dorothy and is worried that uh, Abner, the the older sugar daddy, uh, will find out and withdraw the show's backing. So basically he's Abner has been bankrolling this entire show because he wants to see uh, Dorothy on stage. Uh, And as it turns out, Dorothy and all the other girls, because he shows up to every rehearsal just to kind of leer like a creep. Ogle and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So they're worried that if he learns that uh, Dorothy has a relationship already, then he'll just pull out his backing and, um, and the show will collapse. So Marsh, uh, to prelude that uh, hires a local gangster <laughs> to rough up uh, Pat, uh, the the love interest uh, outside of Peggy's apartment. And uh, Peggy takes Denning up to her room to take care of him after he gets socked in the mouth. And uh, her landlady misinterprets the situation and kicks him out, leading Peggy to storm out as well. With nowhere to and go. It's a great little scene because because uh, you you see from behind as the landlady's lecturing uh, Peggy like uh, just because it's such depression, don't think that I'm being, being lax. I have eyes on you. And in the back, you see like this woman's door open, and she sneaks her boyfriend out of the room, and he goes down the stairs. It's like little little touches we miss once the haze code uh, yeah goes into effect. Yeah, with nowhere to go and no money, Denning pay- takes her back to his place. Although Peggy is worried he will try to seduce her, Peggy, I mean, Peggy, Pat does not giving Peggy his room. There's too many P names going around here. So I (laughs) kind of fumbled all over the place there. The next day, Pat packs to leave for Philadelphia, remembering what the uh, gangster told him about leaving town and also just kind of saying that the, the situation between them of sneaking around is untenable. And Dorothy does agree. They leave on strangely stoic terms. I think Dorothy just doesn't want to kiss him goodbye because that would make it too final for her. They really do sell, even though I think Brent is a little wooden. I think Daniels is good enough that, that, that there's a believable chemistry between them. Right. However, Dorothy and the rest of the company learn that they are to open in Philadelphia, where Pat is moving to, and Dorothy is irritated and worried about possibly seeing him again. Still, they all pack and go to Philly. 
where Dorothy performs, you're getting to be a habit with me during the final dress rehearsal, which flabbergasted me as a kid and still flabbergasts me, has someone dressed as Gandhi show up at the very end to escort her out. I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they thought that would be amusing. It's just weird and jarring. There are a lot of weird and jarring bits in this movie. What can this I is true. Oh, I also want to stop for a moment and point out that we we know they go to Philly because um, they're talking about like, oh, gosh, I guess we're going to Philly. And then as they're unloading a truck to like stagehands, they like, well, this is Philly. Yeah, and it's like, that's a normal human thing for people to say to each other as they've arrived to a place and they're unpacking. It's something I'm going to note when I can start traveling again, when, you know, the world allows it. Whenever I go someplace vaguely new, I'm just going to say, well, I guess this is Salem. I (laughs) guess this is Boise. Just, you know, to center myself. And you never know when the cameras are going to turn on. Exactly. After the rehearsal. Jillian dismisses the cast to go take their minds off the show. The cast heads to Philadelphia's best hotel to various rooms to party. Uh, The majority proceed to get trashed, as they should. It's their right. And tiring of Abner's antics, uh, which are pretty hilarious, like he just throws this woman around to show that he's, you know, a great shot pull. Uh, A fed up, enraged, and drunk Dorothy tells him off. And orders everyone out of her room. Because I guess it's in her suite. Yeah. Dissolving in tears, she breaks down and calls Pat, begging him to come over. Because earlier, she had, I think what really sets her off is as they were leaving the theater to go to the party, she sees Pat uh, escort uh, Peggy into a car to take her to the party. Although he's not invited, he's just going to drop her off. But I think that kind of seeing what Pat do, what she's been doing all along, I think pricks her guilt, pricks her vanity, and pricks her jealousy. Mm-hmm. So Barry and Jones take Abner to see Julian um, after this big blowout fight. Um, and Abner drunkenly tells Julian that if Dorothy isn't taken out of the show, he's going to withdraw his backing. Julian manages to talk him down, but Abner insists that he'll still go through with it if Dorothy um, doesn't apologize that night. Meanwhile, uh, yeah, I mean, and also you're kind of wondering, like, if he remembers, but um, because he is very drunk at this point. Meanwhile, in another suite, a sober Peggy bats off the pawing attentions of a dancer uh, who she, I guess, was her date uh, to this uh, get together and escapes when someone turns the lights off. She sees Pat. She gets him a good smack. Yeah, she does. She sees Pat go into Dorothy's room and overhears Barry and Jones talk about him. Remembering the previous attack on Pat, she hurries to Dorothy's room to warn Pat. Still drunk and remembering seeing Pat and Peggy drive off together earlier, Dorothy's Dorothy's jealousy um, misinterprets Peggy's intentions and lunges for her. Pat holds her back and in the scuffle, Dorothy fractures her ankle. There's a lot of good acting from B.B. Daniels here. She's a great, funny drunk. Julian arrives to tell off Pat and is horrified to discover that his leading lady won't be able to perform because she has fractured her ankle, as reported by the hotel doctor, which I guess we're in a fancy enough hotel that it just has a doctor on staff. Uh, they they used to do that, I guess. They used to do that even during the Depression. And I think it's just Julian Marsh is an interesting character because I feel like the movie wants to portray him as, you know, this like 
poetic kind of tragic hero. Yet, you know, he hires a gangster to rough up Pat. And he's obviously not concerned about Dorothy as Dorothy at all, just about whether or not she'll be able to perform. Right. So he's not a great guy. And while I don't think the film is trying to portray him as like, obviously a completely moral person, it's interesting how they, they don't portray him as a villain either. And I guess, you know, no one's black and white, good or bad. So maybe it's a realistic, but it's funny how they just, they don't linger on his really bad traits, which might've been a good thing. Yeah, they don't. The next day, the cast is all gathered around Julian's office, wondering what will happen. Abner arrives with his new girlfriend and candidate for leading lady. Anytime, Annie. Woo, more Ginger Rogers. <laughs> However, when they meet with Julian, Annie, who, let me remind you, is played by Ginger freaking Rogers, admits that she can't carry the show, but that newbie Peggy Sawyer can. That's the most unbelievable part of the show. <laughs> Ginger Rogers couldn't carry this. Carry this show, which, which we still... The, the show, which we still aren't really 100% clear on what it's about or what it's supposed no. to be, or we, we've seen rehearsals and we see like snippets of what might be some sort of show, but we really have no clue as to like what kind of acting gravitas this would require. But um, apparently, no. apparently Ginger Rogers doesn't feel like she's up for it. I mean, and again, you know, it's, I think it just, it's a testament to her character. The, the women in this, I think, are just really overall imp impressive characters. Because, you know, when Marsh is like, I don't want to try out this newbie I've never even heard of. And she's like, look, Mr. Marsh, I have been looking for this kind of break for years. You, So if I'm going to give it up, it's going to be for somebody who's worth it. And that's what finally convinces him to at least give Peggy a try. Although obviously discouraged by her deer in the headlights look, he Ooh, actually me? agrees to hire her. Seriously, he's like, uh, 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 how'd you like to play the leading lady? Who, me? And he just has this great little like eye roll that he gives the camera. And I'm just, I'm glad they, they, they treat Peggy with just the right amount of humor. Because otherwise it would be kind of unbelievable. <laughs> right. So he proceeds to, you know, drill her all that day in rehearsal. Uh, when she can't get an emotional line reading right, he gets fed up and kisses her passionately, passionately so she, she can act in love. Uh, well, you know, from, uh, yeah, it's a problematic stunt. <gasps> but it works. And he decides she has what it takes. As Peggy takes a breather before the curtain goes up, Billy shows up with some refreshments and confesses his feelings for her. They kiss, but are interrupted by the arrival of Dorothy on crutches. Billy, uh, once again, is the uh, the juvenile, uh, reluctantly leaves them alone. Dorothy is at first intimidating, but then quickly offers Peggy comfort and encouragement. She says she herself had a had her chance and that it's Peggy's turn. She also reveals that she's marrying Pat the next day. Before Peggy goes on stage, Julian gives her his infamous pep talk, telling her, Sawyer, you're going out there, a youngster, but you've got to come back a star. Like hey, wait a minute. That's the name of our, our podcast. podcast. Yeah. Uh, and then she heads out for her very first scene of this mysterious show that no one can tell us what it is or what it's about. But it's a it's a big one. And it's being put on by that Julian Marsh, don't you know? By that, and uh, it's, it's called Pretty Lady. And I guess there are 
multiple pretty ladies in it kind yeah. of exists in a liminal space that is neither here nor there and thus we can enjoy it on its own terms yeah a lot of um a lot of interesting numbers with um with uh the the the, the pretty lady uh being courted by many gentlemen which uh pointed i pointed out while we were watching it is very a uh, tina belcher sort of situation here it really <laughs> it really is a tina belcher fantasy like you said come to come to life uh we yeah we proceed to see three big numbers which all seem like they don't belong in the same show but are nonetheless spectacular first there's peggy's entry scene where we discover her character is a newlywed apparently who performs shuffle off to buffalo with her group I guess we've kind of seen in the background before, but we never really see him take any kind of precedence. And uh, they joined a train full of skeptical onlookers on these honeymooners. And it's a really, it is a really cool set that you could act actually is portrayed as being on the stage, which I think makes it even more spectacular. Uh, So they're on the back of this train and the train splits apart and you see the inside of it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. The parts kind of come together. Um, And also, uh, Anytime Annie and uh, L- Lorraine get get a little uh, back and forth part of the song, which is fully amusing. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of all these numbers. <laughs> next, next, Billy serenades a pretty young Corrine named Toby Wing with Young and Healthy. Uh, Berkeley begins revealing his soon-to-be legendary choreography and camera work. The dancers making patterns for the overhead camera, which does make the viewer wonder what the audience in the seats gets out of it, but it's spectacular for the audiences in the movie houses, which is really all that matters. <laughs> yeah. Totally Yeah, the, uh, it, the the different scenes kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger until you realize there's no way in, in any stage that this could be held. Not at all. That's why it needs to belong in liminal space. Uh, Toby Wing, who plays the Corrine, is a really interesting figure. Her career you know didn't really take off in the same respect as you know like a ginger rogers uh, she was only 17 in this but she'd been working as a showgirl to uh support her family since she was 15 mm. so uh and she does like you like you pointed out when we were watching she does a good job of looking kind of faintly amused by everything in this number and it's too bad we don't get to really see more of her throughout the movie but she does get her chance to shine which is nice yeah and uh, finally, we get the big finale led by Peggy singing an ode to, quote, 42nd Street. The scene perfor- transforms to display the musical chaos of New York City, where we see sundry people dance and interact. Yet the action culminates in a dark turn when a woman is attacked in her room. She drives off. She escapes by diving off the platform outside of her window and she lands into a man's arms. They dance for a while and then she is stabbed by her attacker. And she dies as Billy cynically sings a final ode to 42nd Street from a bar above. It's a dark show, apparently. You couldn't tell from the bouncy music, but it, it was it was very strange. Um, but I mean, I guess, I guess they're trying to show like the different 42nd Street is a land of contrasts. I guess is what they're trying <laughs> to show. Beneath the glitz and the glamour, there's Moida. Exactly. Um, at last, the dancers appear holding cardboard cutouts of New York City's skyline, revealing Billy and Peggy at the top of a set skyscraper, waving goodbye to the audience as they pull the, pull the asbestos fire curtain down, implying something hot is happening behind the curtain. Thank you, IMDb, for telling me that in the trivia, because we were all wondering, 
why did they pull down a carton that says asbestos? And apparently that was kind of the cue to uh, theater audiences back then. Like, don't worry, we have a fire curtain. If there's a fire on stage, uh, we may roast to death, but we'll pull this curtain down so you, the paying audience, don't. So it's kind of they're not like, oh, and now they're going to get up to something hot back here. Ooh, very, very non-code. Julian hovers outside the theater after the show. The departing audience is enthusiastic, crazy Peggy Sawyer in particular. They say that it's unfair that Julian Marsh gets all the credit when it's Sawyer who pulled off the show. Julian smiles ruefully as the film ends. Uh, what a film it was. Bum, ba, dum, bum. 1930s movies fanfare, which is a little bit more appropriate here than what was the one? Fugitive from a chain gang. (laughs) Where that was a little too jarring at the end of that dark scene. Yeah. And this has more of a melancholy ending, I'd say. Um, Yeah. Say what you want about Julian Marsh. He did give a lot of himself to this production. So, but, and what kind of thanks does he get for it? Well, money, hopefully to retire on. Yeah. I think, um, I think kind of the point with uh, the whole thing is like a, it's like, it, what it does is that it brings in the movie audience to things like, well, actually, we know what really happens all behind the scenes now of these big Broadway shows. Um, since we've had mm-hmm. this kind of like insider's look behind the curtain and we have have we have had it hammered home how much like blood, sweat and tears goes into these things and how um how it really does like support this, the livelihood of, of 200 people as is brought up more than once. Um, Mm -hmm. It, it's kind of like its own little living town back there. The, the, the set and stage of a, of a play. And I think that's what must've really attracted it to me when I was a kid is that it does seem like its own community, its own you know, problematic, but at the same time, really fun and wisecracking and just saucy kind of community of uh, of people who compete with each other, but kind of stick together at the same time. It just made it for all that, you know, they're hammering home. This is hard work. This is hard work. It still looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. All right. So that is our summary of the movie. Uh, shall we go into rating this thing? Let's start in on it. All right. Let's start off with acting. How how did you feel the acting went in this movie? Oh, man. I mean, I'm really fond of it. I I think it was just a case of perfect casting. I'd say for, like, technically the best performances, when it goes, you know, dramatically, the chops and everything belong to Warner Baxter as Julian and B.B. Uh, Daniels as uh, Dorothy Brock. I thought she was... She was really good. She brought a lot of fire to Dorothy and really made her an understandable character. I really admire the film for making her become a friend and a, almost a mentor to Peggy in that last scene. Right. Uh, it pre-code allowed women to be hot messes that can still be good people at the end of the day. Right. And I feel like it's something we probably start to miss out on once the Hayes Code is. It's like, well, bad girls have to be bad and mm-hmm. good girls have to be good. And it's like, even Peggy gets her sassy scenes and she's the little wide-eyed innocent. 
And I, when I was a kid, I was very put off by Ruby Keeler. I go like, I don't think she's particularly pretty. I don't think she's that great of a dancer. Uh, she's always looking at her feet and she's clunky. I, she's just too naive to be believable. But I don't know, maybe with age, I'm just mellow. Cause I just thought she was cute and she was, she was perfect for that kind of role. That's very tropey, but there's just a, a kind of a tender humor about how Peggy is portrayed that, that I think is just right. And I think healer is just right. So, and everyone else is just so good. Ginger Rogers, Ned Sparks, Una Merkel, Georgie Stone. Right. They just really live their characters. So I'm going to give the acting a nine. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to match your nine for exactly the right reasons. This, Yay. these people have a lot of charm that really pull these characters and basically, I mean, it, it is, I feel like a very character driven, uh, movie where you, you like these little vignettes of, of each of these characters. Yes. And even, uh, even the minor characters, uh, for the most part are, are pretty amazing and spot on and memorable. Um, and it's again, it's cause every actor is given it their all, like making the, the even the smallest part seem like a real person. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. It's, um, I would say that this is probably um, one place where the movie really shines. And I don't think that it would have um, would have shined as well if it had been handled by by lesser actors, frankly. Um, I agree. Our next category up is the writing. How how well did you think they did with writing? The writing, I mean, the dialogue is perfect. So many little quips that. I'd say primarily belong in the women's mouths, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many little things I miss, like um, uh, I bet your mother was so disappointed when she didn't have a child. And uh, hey, what do you think you're sitting on? A flagpole, dearie, a flagpole. That's just subtle and great. Um, there are kind of clunkers like the, oh, this is Philadelphia. <laughs> and I, I will have to take a point off of it. I think I'm going to give it another nine. Another nine. Wow. Um, I like this movie. I am actually going to um, I'm going to give it a seven just for like uh, I think there were a couple of clunkers and also just the fact that we really don't get we don't get a sense of of the show really and we don't get to see any scenes where Marsh is like truly being a good director and really inspiring and changing people. Uh, and we do with Peggy with Peggy uh, towards the end, but it's really the only time. Yeah. Somewhat. But I mean, I think the, his, his great moment as a director is like taking her and telling her not to screw up because everyone's life is depending on it. Um, there's a little bit of pressure and, you know, kissing her straight up on the lips. There there's that, I guess. Um, but Anyway, he's built up and you believe him as a uh, as a good director. Um, But at the same time, when it comes to the writing, I wish we had had a little bit more of his like inspiration brought to life. And also, yeah, and uh, same way uh, when it comes to Peggy and up to that point, they don't really showcase Peggy being a particularly talented actor or dancer. Um, basically right. all we see her do is, uh, keep up with everyone else, which is good because she's a, a beginner. And also we see her faint. Um, 
yeah, that's not exactly highlighting her strengths, but. But yeah. I mean, at no point prior to her being like, no, this is the person you want to be leading the show. At no point prior do we see Peggy uh, being spotted or like people saying like, oh, hey, look at her. Like, she's really good or anything like that. So it, right. it's a little bit of a jump, but uh, I respect your nine. I'm going to give it a seven. And okay, we balance each other out. Yeah, I think I think it's good. I think it's good, and definitely it's a, a net positive. But you do point out things I didn't think of, though. Uh, a, a subjective uh, affection means I'm going to keep my nine, but I totally respect uh, your seven. Okay, so our third category is going to be cinematography. I was thinking going into this that I was going to give it full marks because, you know, so revolutionary, the overhead shots, but that really comes more down to the design in Berkeley's head. If you actually look at the camera work itself, it's a little bit clunky at times. Like it's not exactly smooth sailing through the women's legs at the end of Young and Healthy uh, (laughs) or up that big skyscraper. It's not as, you know, the tracking isn't great. So really, I think I'm going to give more points to like, I think, uh, uh, sets later on, because I think that whole choreography is part of the set pieces. Mm -hmm. So I think I will give it, I mean, they they still were able to accomplish a lot. So I think I will, I'll still be very kind to give it an eight. An eight was what I was thinking too. Um, They, for the most part, it's not, it's not hugely inspired. uh, The, the cinematic choices that they make, but that's, that's, um, doesn't always have to be bold. And I think that, uh, definitely capturing that Busby Berkeley, um, aesthetic, it, you know, it took some cinematography work. Um, yeah, but yeah, you're, think, you're right. Yeah, it is, yeah. it is largely, a, a production of like the sets and the costumes and the choreography, which I guess were kind of, lumping in with uh, costumes and set for this one. Um, I think we'll have to. Um, I, I do think that one good camera, uh, it might, well, it's, it's more editing actually, is the shot where, you know, she's singing the very beginning bars of 42nd Street. And then we cut to her being on top of a car. Again, not realistic in a stage setting, but it's very, it is very good seamless editing, I guess. Which yeah. I don't know if I'll give this part of cinematography, but I, I guess it's part of it. All right. And uh, up after cinematography, we have overall. How well does the acting, cinematography, and writing come together to make an overall product? Ted, I just, it's such a memorable movie. And again, I'm not the most objective critic of this movie. I love it. That's that. (laughs) I thought it was great. Um, I, hmm. I think that the way that we have things rated out um, really makes sense in that the acting is what we both gave a nine for. And I feel like the Mm -hmm. actor's charisma is really what pulls this movie forward. Um, Which is funny because that's the point made at the end of the movie is that it's all Sawyer. It's not Marsh. And it's like, well, to be fair, this would not have come off without the right actors. That's true. That's true. Um. So yeah, maybe we're not learning the 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 story behind the behind the movie <laughs> that there's this whole other background to it, and you know we don't want to take away from all those people who worked on this film. No, um, but uh, but honestly, the acting did did matter yeah. a whole lot. 
Um, I oh, am yeah. going to give it an overall score of of eight. <laughs> okay. Um, I think it was a fantastic movie. Um, oh yeah. I, and I I don't want anyone to think me not giving it also a ten is is a diss, but. No, you got to understand that this is me not wearing my critic hat, but wearing my shameless fangirl hat. Okay, and we're about to go into the bonus rounds at 68. It's about on the same level as Little Women. Um, Okay. And let's see who else recently. Um, And Henry VIII. Again, this one keeps coming up. Henry VIII would have been perfect as a goofy musical. Each you, wife getting their own sassy little number. You can, you can kind of feel that, yeah. But uh, it's still, it's doing better than, than both of those. So right. it's, it's in a good position. Good All right. And our first chance for bonus points, and this is going to be uh, zero through five, it's going to be costumes and set. Giving it the full five, baby. Uh, Ori Kelly did the dresses and I think he did a great job. They're goofy and uh, great silhouettes and wonderful. Uh, Peggy has ridiculously like snow white level, large uh, puffy sleeves to indicate she's a little ingenue. Anytime Annie's dresses are way too ostentatious to fit her snooty character. And Mm -hmm. Dorothy Brock, I think has the best costumes. And again, I want to kind of, this is where I kind of want to give, Berkeley, the points he deserves for choreography and set design, um, like the, the the little patterns and the effects he gets with his dancers for the overhead shots, all comes down to his insane genius. So five for me. I'm going to match your five for all the obvious reasons. I mean, the the costumes and set are a huge portion of this movie, and they really did a great job. Um, it was important to this movie. Um, Again, we I think it would have been a memorable film even without all the big dance numbers and everything like that, but not not on anywhere the same level. Um, It's it's the choreography and the set and all that great stuff coming together that really makes this movie stand out. I agree. So our next chance for bonus points is boldness. Um, What risks did this movie take that paid off or didn't? You know, I was I was thinking I was going to give it a five, but I did a little more research and I'll have to give it a three because of the original book. Uh, first of all, Julian is gay and he is in a relationship with Billy. They did not bring that to the screen and instead had Billy fall in love with Peggy. And also uh, the writer, whose name I believe was Bernard Ropes, was a little disappointed in the final product because he wanted this to be kind of like a serious expose of how horribly exploited chorus dancers were treated. Right. And we get that in like the scenes where they're forced to raise their skirts, but it's not treated very seriously. It's, it's kind of thrown overboard to kind of highlight just the excitement and the comedy of making a musical. I mean, it still does sneak in a lot of sex jokes, which I'm all for in an early thirties picture. Um, and you know, they, they, they do show how just brutal the rehearsal process is, but like, they don't go as far as the author envisioned. And, um, so it's not as progressive as it could be. So I'll give it a three. Yeah. Um, it definitely has its bold points and that's kind of what makes it difficult to give it bonus points on this is that it has some bold points, but it also has some real missed opportunities. I think of just portraying a, a more 
I don't know, a realistic and and not perfect feeling little family in town behind the behind the curtain there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give it two points. And okay. um, I think it's and the two points just being for like some of the things that just wouldn't pass after the code. And yeah, um, but I think like the risks that they did take were fairly safe risks compared to something like explicitly having the director be um, be gay and yeah, other other things like that. Um, but still not bad, not bad at all. No. Um, it no, still it earned its it earned its two points. I mean, the audiences, I think, you know, or at least producers assume that audiences wanted more escapism than like grittiness. Right, and, right. I mean, when, when the product is as fun as this, you can't really argue, but you could see why someone like the author would have been a little upset. Right. Okay. And uh, Legacy, I think it's going to do well here, mm-hmm. g- given who's in Bye it. Bye for me. Yeah, yeah. Given, yeah, not only that, but the fact that this kind of helped re-envision the movie musical. Like, obviously, we have something like uh, Broadway Melody of 1929 uh, that won Best Picture uh, that was a backstage drama. But this really kind of gave life to a bunch of tropes that are, I think are good, solid tropes that we see again and again. The wisecracking chorus girl, the wide-eyed ingenue, the smitten juvenile, the... Uh, the heavy role of the director, that kind of thing. And we start seeing stuff like uh, Broadway Melody of 1933, which, you know, was named after the Broadway Melody of 1929 and all that. But all the Broadway melodies that follow, I think, kind of are more inspired by um, by this movie. This mm-hmm. movie was a huge hit. This was the banner year of Warner Brothers getting rescued. You know, you hear about, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang, gave them the their progressive reputation. And now this is the one that, helped raise up for bankruptcy because it was such a big hit. Uh, so yeah, I've got to give it a five. Nice. Yep. Double fives. Five for me as well. Um, up next is longevity. How many bonus points would you like to give it for its longevity? I'll have to take a point off in this Me Too era because the sexual politics aren't great. Um, and, you know, modern audiences, I think, are just not as ready to escape into the uh, surrealism and absurdity of these kind of set pieces in a supposed theatrical production. Um, but, you know, I can't see anyone actively hating this movie watching it. Um, so I'll, I'll give it a I'll give it a three. A three. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to match your three. Um, it would be more. If um, again, like the Me Too moments are definitely um, unnerving. And mm-hmm. also I felt like, um, I don't know, it it struggled with. Um, with making the whole thing feel consistently real and gritty because you kind of had like, OK, yeah, this is I'm grooving on this. I can believe this. And then all of a sudden there's this kind of like who me moment and. And that felt a little <laughs> bit jarring. Um, I also feel like people um, people are less impressed by stage and movie magic these days. I think um, I don't know yeah. why. Maybe I'm, I'm I'm assuming too much about people, but that's just well, my and take the on tropes it. Tropes are so 
because of its legacy, it almost kind of hurts its longevity because the tropes seem kind of laughable now. Did you hear Barry and Jones are putting on the show by Kelly? You gotta go out there, youngster, and win them over and blah, blah, blah. That it would be hard to keep a straight face these days. Right. But it does make it less likable, but yeah, it does take a few points off longevity. Okay. And our last category for bonus points is uh the technical stuff. Um they they did get those overhead shots. Uh, I'll give it a five. I think this will be a good place to put in also Berkeley's achievements. Actually, probably more appropriate than for sets. I kind of I always forget about technical. Uh, but yeah, I'll give it I'll give it a five. Yeah, I think I'll give it a five as well. Um, just the the changes between the different sets on the stage and everything like that are all very impressive. Um, just from a cinematic standpoint and also technically. Um, Mm -hmm. and putting, putting all of that kind of that feeling of a big stage review, uh, on screen in an effective way, because we, we've had, we, we did cover something called Hollywood review that did not do it well. (laughs) Um, but, but this, this translated it to a different medium in a way that still kind of kept that character. Yes. Well put. And. Are you ready for the final score here? I am so ready. That puts uh, 42nd Street, the source of the title of this podcast, at 109 points. All right, baby. All right. Let me see if there's anything that's pretty close to that. Um, no, it's kind of in a weird liminal zone. <laughs> Just uh, like Pretty Lady, the show of the show. It, it really, really is because I'm looking past. I'm looking at these past scores that we've given out, and um, they're either like significantly higher, or most of them significantly lower. Um, but yeah, it good job, Forty Second Street, um, for for a show about a show that was not really a show. Um, good job, good job for for I, tearing off the the blinds behind the uh, the stage. In a really, really freaking entertaining way. The way I would summarize 42nd Street, and I've said this to you before, because we've both talked about how we'd like to live in Star Trek. How that's, you know, this utopian society in the future where there's adventure and cool aliens and it's great. I kind of want to live in both. I want to live in the best of Star Trek and the best of 42nd Street, which means leaving behind the sexual harassment and problematic elements but the aesthetic and the camaraderie and all of that and the rear, even the surreal displacement of the show itself is just the place I like to be in. Uh, I, I think it's probably important that we should also point out that both of us are theater kids. And um, <laughs> what? so, so yeah, this really transported me back to, um, to, to, to days when, when I myself was behind that, uh, that stage curtain. <laughs> and the <laughs> weird drama strange. that would go on yeah um or we try to go on at least we we weren't that dramatic um but yeah it's fun to pretend a solid movie that you would not necessarily think would like if someone told me about this movie i don't know if i would be as impressed by the summary of it as i was by the actual movie if that makes sense i Yes, yes, it's more than the sum of its parts for sure. 
Okay, so that gives it a good solid score of 109. The final question, of course, is whether or not we are going to nominate it for the prestigious Notsker Award, a movie award podcast movie award for movies. What say you, Laura? I got to. I got to. I think it'd be awfully weird if we reviewed the source of our podcast's name (laughs) and didn't nominate it for our own award. So it, that's a nomination yeah. for me as well. Good job, 42nd Street. You are a good fun time. You did come back a star. You did. And you 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 went out there from from our youth in Laura's case, from from when she mm-hmm. was a youngster, and and it came back a star. So it has some Thank holding you for power. They're alienating me from my peers. <laughs> <gasps> All right. Uh, I believe that's the episode for today. Um, if you want to contact us on Twitter, we're at Comeback a Star. If you want to email us with uh, letting us know what kitty cars are, um, you can do that Please at do. Gmail. You can do that at gmail.com with the address. I'm doing this all backwards. Comeback a Star podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page. So if you search for us, Come Back a Star on Facebook, you should be able to find us. And um yeah, I think that's all I have to say for now. Um, I'm going to yeah. draw the curtains and turn off the projector. Uh, anything uh, you'd like to share, Laura, before we turn off? Um, come back uh, and visit us here at Naughty, Naughty, Body, Sporty. Uh, come back to Star Podcast.